Good morning, new community. Uh, My name is Peter Cha, and my family and I regularly worship here. And I am a faculty member at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. When I first began to teach there in the late 90s, actually, Pastor Peter Hong was one of my students. And I could tell you, since he's not here, he was a very good student. Um, But it's now a joy for me to sit under his teaching and preaching and have him as one of my pastors. He's away this weekend. He and his wife are uh, taking a short break, and so I'm stepping in for him, and it is certainly a privilege of mine to open God's Word with you. So last few weeks, we've been going through a sermon series under the theme, Being Sent. What does it mean for God's people, for you and I, to have that call to be sent to fulfill God's purpose and mission. And last week in particular, Pastor Peter introduced this theme, and that is, to be sent does not necessarily mean that we always move about, just going from point A to B to C. There are seasons in our lives when God calls us to move, but also there are times in our life season when being sent simply means being rooted, being anchored, being invested in that particular space, that particular place that God has called us to be at. So today, using Jeremiah 29, we're going to look into that theme even in a deeper way. So if you have your Bible, please open to Jeremiah chapter 29. Jeremiah, as you know, is an Old Testament book about midsection or two-thirds way through after book of Isaiah. And Jeremiah chapter 29 is what we'll be looking at today. And I'd like to begin reading from verse 4. And I'm reading from NIV. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Yes, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, 
and will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord, and will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. Let's come before the Lord and ask for God's blessings as we look into this particular passage this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Our gracious God in heaven, as your beloved children, we now come to this place in our worship to open your word. Lord God, it is our prayer that your Holy Spirit be our teacher. Open our hearts, Lord, that we might capture that vision, that promise that you have given to your ancient people in the past that that might be the same compelling calling that we would receive this day. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. So the year was 590 B.C. The place, the Babylonian Empire. Thousands of Judeans, God's people, were taken into exile roughly 700 miles away from their homeland, forced across the desert, and they were dropped into these cities in this place called Babylonian Empire. Now, this particular event has turned their lives upside down in a way that they, they did not imagine or expect it. Think, if you will, that you are in their sandals. You are violently and forcefully taken away from your loved ones. The place of familiarity. You are not there anymore. Instead, you find yourself in an entirely foreign, alien place where the languages are different, customs are different, food tastes different, even weather climate is different, and the landscape's definitely unrecognizable. You are in a place where you're experiencing a disorientation, right? And on top of that, if you read verse 2 above, it says that the people who were sent to exile were not necessarily just ordinary people. Babylonians, as oppressors or occupiers, made sure that they are only handpicking certain people to be on exile. These were the children of political elites of the country. These were the rich merchants. These were the skilled workmen. In other words, these were sort of who's who in a Judean society. But now, they're in this alien land. Before they were somebody, now they're nobody. It's into this setting, today's letter from Jeremiah comes to God's people. And it gives us simply two mandates, two commands. The first one is found in verses 5 and 6. And let me read that again. Verse 5 and 6. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. If you just read that casually, 
You wonder, like, what kind of command is that? It sounds so ordinary. It sounds so mundane. I mean, it doesn't say, come and pray. Come and worship the Lord. It simply says, build a house. Plant a seed. Have your sons and daughters marry. Start the family. What's so extraordinary extraordinary about that command, right? Well, to understand really the significance of this particular command, we have to kind of understand the context of that time. It's hinted in verse 8 and 9. Basically, as this exile life was beginning, there were some false prophets that emerged from that exile crowd. And they began to particularly tell this narrative to God's people. Okay, folks, this exile life is really hard, but don't worry. Very soon, God will destroy this Babylonian empire and will bring us all back to our homeland. It's a matter of time that's going to happen, so don't worry. Now, you could see how that particular story or prophesying seemed like such a great news for God's people. Oh, yay, God. Oh, soon we're going to go back home. And it began to not only shape how they're thinking about future plans, but what they should do today, right now. So why build a house in this foreign land if the prophets are telling us we're going to go back home tomorrow? Why plant the seed and wait for harvest when we may not be here anymore when we harvest the goods? Why get married and have children here when we're going to about to go back and, you know, I want to go back to my village and marry so-and-so, right? So all the things that they were thinking about future and about what they should do day-to-day today was beginning to be powerfully shaped by that false narrative, the fake narrative of the false prophets. And it's into that mist, Jeremiah sends this letter and says, no. In fact, in verse 10, he tells God's true prophecy and saying, you're going to be here for 70 years. Whoa. 70 years. It has a sense of permanence about that. You're going to be here 70 years, so settle down and make yourself at home. Settle down and build houses here. Settle down. Enter into that long-term economic activity of farming. Settle down and marry and start family. Now, when they heard this, when they got this letter, I'm sure for many, those who were in exile, who just began to taste the harshness of being an alien in a foreign land, this seemed like a news of doom and gloom. Right? For those who are grown-up adults, 
they begin to realize, you know what, 70 years, that means I will never see my homeland again. And then there was another sense where perhaps this 70-year news would hit these people really hard because they would see it as a God's harsh punishment to them. Because as you may know, prior to this Babylonian exile, for decades, God's been warning God's people to turn away from their way of worshiping pagan gods and idols, to turn away from valuing the material wealth above God, to turn away from ways of oppressing the poor. God has sent numerous prophets and told them to turn away from those ways of wickedness and to come to God. And unless you repent, unless you do so, God will bring a foreign army into your land and destroy a good part of your land, and take some of you to exile. God had given them those prophecies, but God's people, as you remember, ignored them. And in fact, going on a Babylonian exile was a part of that punishment that God had predicted for decades. So for them to get this 70-year news means, oh my gosh, finally, God is really spanking us hard. This is a punishment we're getting. So they're bracing themselves for 70 years of a hard, hard life. But then, you go down the further on a verse 11 down, what we see is not so much God's intent here is to punish his people for the wrongdoings of the past, although there is a small part of that, but the larger intent of God is to reshape and transform his people. Because go down in verse 11 and down, what, what, what is the tone here? For I know the plans I have for you. Plans for prosperity. Plans not to harm you, but plans to give you hope and future. And when you call on me, when you come and pray to me, I will listen to you. You will seek me, and you will find me. Somehow here, God is saying, you know, this 70 years of being away from your homeland, that is the exact the kind of experience you need to turn to me. And I'm going to somehow use this exile experience of yours to make me a true people of mine. Many of you are familiar with Genesis chapter 12. In fact, uh, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Genesis chapter 12. This is a passage where God appears for the first time to Abraham. Now, to, the, to set the uh, significance of this passage of Genesis chapter 12, we need to go back a little and remember what the human history was like between Genesis chapter 3 and Genesis chapter 12. After Adam and Eve's fall... And, and, and their disobedience to God, and what human history was like after that point. The Cain and Abel story, where Cain murders his brother, right? And then like chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, it is an ongoing story 
of human beings just continually rebelling against God and receiving all kinds of punishment. It's just very despairing and gloomy history of human history. And then we come to chapter 12 of Genesis, and this is how chapter 12 begins. When God appears to Abraham, he says, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. (laughs) This is the first time God appears to Abraham. Before even saying hello, God says, You need to leave your country, your father's land. I'm going to take you somewhere. Now, strange thing is, God doesn't even mention where. He just simply says, I have to yank you out of this space. Many of the biblical commentaries that focus on that significance of that command made this observation. As you know, Abram is the person that God has chosen to start a new humanity, new family of faith. So Abram is often called father of faith, right? What's so special about him? Well, in many ways, how he developed his faith. God had a very intentional plan or ways of shaping that. And he began with Abraham leaving his country. You see, human nature being what it is, when you and I live in our own country, in our own father's place, when any kind of unexpected challenges come to us, our first instinct is not to turn to God. I know this place. I have certain knowledge about this culture. I have a networking with people. So if I get into trouble, I rely on my own knowledge. If I need someone, the first instinct is to turn to my neighbors, friends, relatives, my own family members. Our instinct is not to turn to God. But what happens when God yanks away from that place? and drops you at a place where now you have no cultural knowledge of that place, you don't even know the language, and you're a stranger among strangers. And when unexpected life challenge comes to you, now you cannot rely upon your own knowledge, your own networking, your own skill sets. Now you're forced to lean into God. Forced to trust them. And it's often in that setting God does most creative work in and through you. And if you go through the narrative of uh, Abraham after Genesis 12, you will find that to be the pattern again and again that, that Abraham, being in that place where he's profoundly dislocated, learning to lean into God, trusting him. And it's in that context God shapes and reshapes his faith. In fact, one theologian in particular looking at that pattern came up with a phrase that I come to really appreciate. He called it creative dislocation. Creative dislocation. It's 
often when you and I feel dislocated in a profound way, God does his most creative work in and through us. And that was not just life story of Abraham, but if you think about it, that's also the story of Joseph. That's the story of Moses. That's the story of Ruth. That's the story of Esther. That's the story of Daniel. This notion of creative dislocation. And I believe, in the end, that's what the Babylonian exile has done for God's people. Because if you remember, when these people who are in exile for 70 years return, homeland, we read about them in the book of Nehemiah, in the book of Ezra, It is through these people God does his work of revival in Judah. And how these people, it seems to show again, have gone through that experience of creative dislocation and were able to be used by God in a profound way. Settle down. Make yourself home here. And in this strange place, in this alien land, learn to trust me deeply. Not your knowledge, not your tools, not your resources, but turn to me and you will find me. Now, perhaps some of you, for some of you, Chicago is your home. For generations, you lived here. This is your familiar space. But my guess is like me, many of you, you are transplants. You are brought from somewhere because of education, because of job, because of marriage. You left certain towns and cities to come here. And some of us, we left certain country to be here. So 1978, I came to Chicago first time to go to college coming from Northern Virginia. And I thought I'll be here only for four years and then go back. Well, clearly God had a different plan for me. Now this is the 40th year for me, right? Not quite 75, but sometimes I feel that way. Now, every winter time comes along, (laughs) I ask myself, why am I still here? Why am I still in my Babylonia? Well, often, when we are at that place, and sometimes it's not because we moved, but it's often also because we changed our career. Or we graduated from one level of school to move to another level of a school. All that experience of dislocation and displacement, it's not easy because it it yanks us away from the place of familiarity and comfort and drop us in a place where now we are nobody again. No one knows us. We often come to that place. And when we do, often our human instinct is to sort of um, romanticize the past, thinking about good old days and wanting to be distracted from what is at hand right here. Or sometimes, we want to fast forward. 
I don't like Chicago. I don't like the school I'm in. I don't like the job I'm having now. And I want to really hurry to that next place and not invest in what God has called me to be at this time, at this place. Notice in this passage, there are a couple times of mentioning that it was not Babylonian army that brought you here as an exile, but it is God who brought you from Judea to here. And that means God has a purpose for you being here, right? So my brothers and sisters, especially those of us who feel like we're sojourning through Chicago, we want to hurry this process because we don't see this as our home. Our home is somewhere else, some other time. That may be. But the call of this passage is that God did not bring you here accidentally. That there might be a particular purpose God has for you, for that space in which you live and work and serve for times such as this. What might that be? That God might do his work of creative dislocation in and through you. That's the first command, 5, verses 5 and 6. Now, let me move on to second command, which is verse 7. It says, Also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Here is important, in my view, significance of these two commands going together. If the first one, we are to understand it as God's calling for us to be rooted in this space so that you can experience renewal of your faith in God and have deeper relationship with God above. The second one is now about God is going to do that not so much so that you will enjoy the fruit of new life in God, but so that God can use you as a blessing to others. It's got that horizontal uh, uh, dimension, right? I mean, it's this Christian understanding when God blesses us, whatever that means, individually or as a family, It's rarely so that you and I would just enjoy what God has given us. It's always coming with this second mandate so that you will be God's channel of blessing to others. And it is to that second commandment that we want to pay attention to. Now, here was another hard thing for Judeans who are in exile. Okay, here... The command is not complex. It simply says, pray for the cities where you're living in and pray for God's peace and work toward their prosperity. The trouble here, though, especially for Judeans, is that God is asking them to pray for and to bless the very people who tormented their country, who occupied their nation, and who have violently brought 
them from their homeland to here. God is asking them to bless their enemies. Do you remember the story of Jonah when God took him to Nineveh and asked Jonah to proclaim the message of salvation to people in Nineveh and how Jonah was very reluctant to do it? Why? Because Ninevites were enemies of his people. And here, same dynamics comes out. Now, I don't know about you, but I grew up in a Christian tradition, a Christian church, that taught me to look at the unbelieving world, secular world, as not only dangerous place, but as if they were our enemies. The world out there is out to destroy our faith. The world out there is there to corrupt our faith. They're enemies of God, and therefore they should be our enemies. And then on top of that, there is also this sense, you know the world out there, outside the church, it's so corrupted. It's so sinfully shaped and reshaped. It's a lost cause. It's beyond salvaging, right? Sometimes we often hear the the metaphorical use of the, the, the Titanic. It's like that big ship hitting the iceberg and the water is gushing into the ship and it's beginning to tilting. Our world is like that. So it's too late. You know, you're wasting your time and effort as Christians if we're trying to make something better out there. It's better to put their use of energy to something else. Like, go find yourself a lifeboat, get on it, and save yourself. Because the world is falling apart. So if you and I come from that particular tradition of the church, we don't know how to read Jeremiah 29. What? God is actually asking me to pray for the world and seek its prosperity, seek its peace? What does that mean? During my, uh, before I was uh, uh, teaching at seminary, I was a campus minister for InterVarsity Christian Fellowship during 1980s and 90s. And uh, during those early years of ministry, the person who really shaped me in a very powerful way was a British evangelical scholar, pastor, and author named John Stott. Perhaps some of you are familiar with his writings and so forth. He's now with the Lord. But in one of his uh, public message to university staff workers, he said this. And as a British evangelical theologian, he had a particular way of looking at American evangelicalism. And he said, you know, particularly young ministers of the gospel who are serving in the United States, I want you to reclaim the faith and legacy of the 19th century evangelicals, he said. Huh? 
19th century evangelicals. What's he talking about? Well, this is a very compelling message he gave that certainly grabbed my heart. And, and he said this, in the 19th century, God did some mighty work of the Holy Spirit through the revival movement that went through most parts of the United States, particularly East Coast and Midwest. Thousands of people converted to their faith in Christ. But then, as they became Christian, 19th century evangelicals were not just content with the idea, now that they're Christian, they're going to go to heaven, so I'm just going to coast along. But instead, as now followers of Jesus, they began to grapple with some sins of injustice and 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 the corruption in the society of the United States in the 19th century, and began to really engage with some big stuff, like abolitionist movement, fighting against slavery. Did you know that that was not a secular movement? That most notable abolitionists were, in fact, recent converts who came to know Christ through the revival meetings. Right? Their understanding of what it means to love God was directly now tied to second greatest command, love your neighbors as you would love yourself. But then in 20th century, according to John Stott and some of the church historians, American Christianity went through a split. On the one hand, there was a growing number of denominations and churches that went theologically liberal, if you will. And they began to really focus on that horizontal ministry of a social service, compassion, and justice, what is now called social gospel, but began to withdraw from their vertical relationship with God above. Now, reacting against that, many Bible-believing churches and denominations began to emphasize greatly their vertical relationship with God, but then began to really retreat from the biblical social engagement. Right? So, John Stott said, what the liberal Christians did in the 20th century America, he called it the great betrayal. The betrayal of a historic Christianity. But then, for the conservative Christians who retreated from this world, and disengaging with the significant issues of the day, and focusing only on pietistic relationship with God, he called that the great reversal. Because it's so different from 19th century evangelicals. And he came to a conclusion. Both sides lost a great deal of the biblical vision of the gospel. And then he appealed to us, the young university staff workers, your generation need to reclaim the complete picture of what God calls us to be. Right? Continually walking with God personally and deepening our faith in Christ, but also because of that faith, engaging in the wider world in which you Pray. Seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. 
Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. As I mentioned earlier, I'm now teaching at a school called Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. Um, Some of our students live on campus, but most of our students commute from elsewhere. And it was a 2008 when five of our Master of Divinity students, these are the students who are training to be future pastors, uh, decided to rent a house together and, and live as a Christian community. Now, the location of that house, though, was not near our campus, and our campus is located in Deerfield, which is a pretty affluent, predominantly white suburban community. But the house that they found and intentionally moved into was located in a small town that's about 10 miles north of our campus called North Chicago. Now, North Chicago is predominantly African-American and Hispanic, and it's an economically under-resourced, poorer community. Now, these five students, Caucasians and Asian-Americans, intentionally decide to move there and, and do their living there while they're studying at Trinity, but also to really, in some ways, live out what this is asking for. So from the time that they began their lives there together, they would pray intentionally for the community, for the the, uh, city's government, for the churches of that community, and for the educational institutions, praying very uh, deliberately, different institutions, different nights. In fact, I was told that they did not want to just pray aimlessly, so they would send one of their five members to city council meetings regularly so that they could go. And here, what, what are the issues that this government is wrestling with? And bring back the report so when they pray, they would pray in a more informed way. And also one of them would often go to inter-church gatherings to hear how leaders from different churches talk about the issues that are facing many congregations in that community. And then they got involved in tutoring of one of the high schools nearby, and they began a Bible study eight years ago, and it's still going, and bringing God's word into the high school in North Chicago. Now, as they continue their ministry, in 2011, a crisis happened in North Chicago. This is a pre-Ferguson days, but it was about the violent clash between the police department, where the officers were mostly Caucasians, and the black residents in the community. It got so tense that there was a daily demonstration going on in the front of the city hall. And these students who were living in that house, sensing this is one of those times that things could go either way, began to set aside several days for fasting and prayer. One evening, they got a phone call, and this call was from the mayor of the city. And the mayor called them and said, um, you know, I told, I'm told by some people that in this house, you have a bunch of students from seminary far away. 
but you've been living here and you've been regularly praying for our city government and for me. And that I am told you are not even fasting because of the crisis we're facing. Is that true? The student said, yes. We've been praying regularly for you and the council, and now we're facing a crisis moment. We decided to fast and pray for you. So this mayor, who is a Baptist uh, deacon, an African-American man, asked, can I come to your place and receive prayer? He felt so besieged. So he said, yeah, tonight we're having prayer meeting at 9 o'clock. Please come. So he came down. And these students surrounded him and laid their hands upon him and began to pray. This mayor was so moved by that prayer, he in fact said, you know, I'm going to ask one of you to come to our next council meeting. And as we open our meeting, I want to offer this fervent prayer to God. We need this. Well, so now, these students are invited to the city government to come and open the meeting asking for God's help. Fast forward. So last year, the city government of North Chicago approached these students and the ministry that I am part of called Mosaic Ministries through our Divinity School You know, we have this old library building that we have not been using. It's a very nice space and so forth. But we want to sell it to you for $10. Because we think your students and their spiritual impact can really use that building to make a difference in many lives of people in this township. Whoa! Okay, we got it for $10, but renovation is going to require quite a bit of fundraising. But this is that space where many of the young adults and young people remember going to to check out books and so forth. It's not being used today, but we are just grateful how this space might be able to be used by God to bring more people come in contact with the good news of Christ. The other thing, this year, we were contacted by Lilly Foundation in Indianapolis. This is a grant-giving foundation that's associated with the Lilly Pharmaceuticals. They contacted us partly because they heard about what our students are doing, and now we have uh, 60 to 70 students who are regularly participating in what we call Mosaic Ministry. And they said, you know, we're going to grant you or give you the grant of a $1.5 million so that what you're doing in North Chicago and Waukegan might bear more fruit. You know what this passage talks about? If you pray for peace and prosperity of your city, and when it prospers, you would also prosper, right? And in many ways... What those five students did in 2008, God has honored that. And the people in the community are taking notice of that. And it is engaged in this cycle of continually being God's blessings 
not just for my Trinity students, but so many in that community. I share this story because sometimes we think significant change or any meaningful change in this larger world outside is only going to happen through some kind of governmental policymaking or happen through very rich individuals bringing huge wealth asset into a community, right? And sometimes we don't think that ordinary people, ordinary Christians like ourselves can do a whole lot. But an instructive thing that I want to share with you is that often what God seeks from us is a faithfulness. Not because we have so much to offer, but we can all pray and we can all seek God opening opportunities so that we can step into that gap and be used by God in a powerful way. Creative dislocation, especially when we are in a place when we feel disorientation and dislocation, rather than being discouraged, let's embrace that as an opportunity when God might powerfully shape and reshape us. But then he would do it not simply because you and I will continue to grow as individual Christians, but also because God may have called us to be that channel of blessing to the world around us. That is the challenge and hope and a promise of Jeremiah's letter to the exile. Let's pray. Our gracious God in heaven, it is often in our life experience of journey that we find ourselves in a place that does not feel like a home a place where we feel disoriented, a place where we feel dislocated. And Lord, I pray that uh, as we have seen through the life of Abraham and Joseph and Daniel and Ruth, and now the Judeans in this exile, it is often in that place that you call us to put our roots down. You call us to make an investment into that city, praying for it, as well as seeking its prosperity. Or I don't know where all my brothers and sisters, what world that they, in which they find their, themselves today. But pray that this challenge and promise and hope that come through this Jeremiah 29 would give us a certain vision, certain motivation, and certain desire to be used by you to be that blessing for many. And we pray all this in the most precious name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.